Unprepared to engage Mormon missionaries when they knock on your door? Perhaps the book Mormonism 101 will help. Mormonism 101, published by Baker Book. Available at your favorite Christian bookstore. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. What does it mean when a Latter-day Saint says that God's love is perfect? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. Yesterday we began looking at a conference message that was given by a Mormon apostle by the name of Dale G. Renlin. It was titled, Your Divine Nature and Eternal Destiny. It was given in the Saturday afternoon General Conference Women's Session on April 2nd, 2022. And in yesterday's introduction, we mentioned how he is going to be taking as his outline something that is known as the Young Women Theme. Now, yesterday, Eric read what that Young Women Theme is. But in the next paragraph, after he introduces this, he talks about how these women are beloved daughters of heavenly parents with a divine nature and eternal destiny. He says to his audience that nothing you do or do not do can change that you are a beloved daughter. That's what he's trying to get across here. He says God loves you because you are his spirit daughter. Sometimes we may not feel his love, but it is always there. God's love is perfect. Our ability to sense that love is not. The question I was raising yesterday is, what does it mean when Dale Renlin, as an LDS leader, says that God's love is perfect? Now, he gives us a hint, I guess, because after the word perfect, at least in the printed transcript of his talk, he has a reference to Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 38 through 39. But these verses really only make sense if you do not already buy into the presupposition that every human being is a child or daughter of God. This is where bad theology can end up leading you into some real bad conclusions, and I think that doctrine that's unique to Mormonism is one of those bad doctrines, and we'll explain why. First of all, the New Testament really does not imply that all human beings are the literal children of God. What does it say in John chapter 1, Eric? Verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So you have to first believe in him in order to become a child of God. Notice there's no hint there that you automatically are just because you were born. In fact, verse 13 makes it clear that those who have become the children of God because they believe in his name, they were born not of blood. We don't get any indication that it's just because you were born physically that that makes you a child of God. It's not even the will of the flesh nor even the will of man, but you're born of God. He is the one that intervenes in our lives and draws us to himself. Now, why is that necessary? 
Because Romans 3 makes it very clear that left to ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. We want nothing to do with him. So it's important to realize that there has to be a spiritual rebirth in order for an individual to become a child of God. There might be some people who are listening to us right now don't know very much about Mormonism. You have to understand the preexistence, according to Mormonism, teaches that all of us were born as spirit children, and because we chose Jesus at the Council of Heaven, two-thirds of God's spirit children were allowed to take on bodies. And so that is why many Latter-day Saints, when they come up to you, will say brother or sister, because that's in a literal way, because we were all spirit children together, and therefore we would all be spirit brothers and sisters. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, getting back to his footnote, where he references Romans 8, 35, and then 30, verses 38 through 39. Bill, another passage, listen to what verse 14 says in Romans 8. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He goes on and says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Again, showing that you have to be a Christian to be able to be called a child or a son of God, and you need to understand in the context of what we're going to read here at the end of Romans 8, he's talking about Christians. Well, let me just add to that, Eric, because if a Latter-day Saint was going to be consistent, where it says in verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Wouldn't you think that a Latter-day Saint would have to argue that we are not children of God simply because they don't think we are led by the Spirit that they are being led by? If we were being led by the same Spirit, then wouldn't it make sense? We would probably be Latter-day Saints. Now, it goes both ways. We don't think Latter-day Saints are truly led by the Holy Spirit of God because of the things that they've been led to believe. So while we may argue as to, well, who's really being led by the Spirit of God, it still seems to be pretty sure here, according to verse 14, that you have to be led by some spirit. But in order to be a child of God, you have to be led by the Spirit of God. That seems very clear. Now, that brings us to Romans chapter 8, because that is the reference that Mr. Renlin is going to cite. He cites 8, 35, and then 38 through 39. But we're going to read it all in its proper context. Starting with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, let me stop you there, Eric. Who's the us? That's believers. Exactly. If you look at the context, the us are believers, those who are, in fact, children of God who have put their faith in Christ. That is the us in these passages. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Again, Bill, there's God's elect referring to Christians. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Us, believers. 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as a New Testament believer, I believe everything that you just read. I believe that his love is actually perfect towards me. It is complete. It is consistent. And because of what Christ has done in my life, as it says in verse 33, it is God who justifies. Ask your Latter-day Saint friend if they have the confidence that they are in fact justified before God, that if they were to die right now, all their sins are forgiven. They will probably express doubt because it's based on something they must do as well. This is why I'm asking the question, how does this perfect love that Dale Renlund talks about in his talk, how does that word resonate with those that are listening to him? Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of listeners in that crowd that probably weren't even thinking about that. They're just, oh, this is just a nice, feel-good sermon for me. But I think we need to go a little bit deeper with that because words have meaning. And we're trying to dissect what Renlin is saying, trying to get some sense out of this, because the way Mormonism describes this perfect love, if you're a son or a daughter of God, it doesn't sound like it's all that consistent then, because it's going to change. He's acting as if this is always the same, but yet he's going to go on and explain that there are certain things that those in his audience can do or not do, which is going to carry an eternal consequence. He's not going to hide that fact. This is why it's so important for us again, as New Testament believers, to rest in the fact that if we are saved by works at all, they're not our own. They're not our own works that save us. It's the work of Christ done on our behalf that saves us. Our faith in what he did on our behalf is the faith that justifies. There's nothing that we can possibly add to what Christ has done, because as he said on the cross, it is finished. We have a term that we use in Christianity called imputation. Imputation is getting credit for something that you did not do. You did not earn that. And that's the gospel message, because if there's anything that you did in order to be able to receive salvation, then that's something you could boast about. But you have nothing to boast about because Jesus paid the entire price. Mr. Renlund goes on to say that the Spirit plays a pivotal role in communicating God's love to us. And then he says, so too, behaviors that distance us from the Holy Ghost, including sin, make it difficult for us to perceive God's love for us. If behaviors are going to distance us from the Holy Ghost, wouldn't behaviors also distance us from God the Father, the Heavenly Father of Mormonism? It would seem to make sense. Now, he mentions sin itself. That's where we always go back to section one in the Doctrine and Covenants. 
For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. There's that synergistic understanding that Jesus does some and you also have to do some. And if you don't do your part, Jesus has no obligation on his part to do anything for you other than the promise of resurrection, which only means you're going to be designated to a lower kingdom, either the terrestrial or telestial kingdom, if you were not, in fact, living up to celestial law. This is why I think it's important that we talk about this. Behaviors distance us from the Holy Ghost, Renlin says. And he's going to have to agree that behaviors also distance us from Heavenly Father. If we don't live up to those standards, as I said in yesterday's show, Heavenly Father has no obligation to bestow upon you the same benefits, or you could even say the same amount of love, quote-unquote, that he's going to bestow upon those who followed his commandments to the letter. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another Viewpoint on Mormonism. When sharing your faith with a Latter-day Saint, it helps to know what their church has taught on several basic topics. For this reason, Mormonism Research Ministry has provided its Crash Course Mormonism. Crash Course Mormonism includes concise articles highlighting what LDS leaders and church manuals have taught on issues that will probably come up in a typical conversation. You can find these informative articles at CrashCourseMormonism.com. That's CrashCourseMormonism.com.